0: Hey there, come face to face with a bear on the trail, point and scream, ah, a human. This will confuse it long enough for you to get away, or practice your bear impersonation. This is Wildlife with Devin and Richard Boker, a podcast that uses interviews with Earth's experts and storytelling to blend science, nature, and the human experience. I'm Devin Boker, just me today, and this is it's our 29th episode. That's a huge deal for us. For those of you who haven't been paying attention... We have been hard at work revamping our whole show and are switching to a weekly release schedule, meaning that episode count is about to skyrocket with 52 episodes each year. Plus, we already have nearly two years of topics prepared and ready to go, and we've conducted nearly a dozen interviews in like the last month. But before we get into today's topic, I want to give a shout out real quick to our member supporters Megan Gariani, Matt Capel, Chris Trinkle and Andrea Lloyd. Without your help, our show would not be possible. If you're listening and you're like, wow, they sound cool and really special, you know what, you're right, and so can you. You can also be special and cool. You can become a member of The Wildlife for as little as $1 per month. Details and a complete freakishly long list of community and merchy benefits can be found on patreon.com slash thewildlife. Okay, now to get to it.
1: Encourage young people to ask questions about nature and to get more involved with nature. We have one Earth.
0: We know less about the bottom of the ocean than we do about the moon.
1: Keep your eyes open.
0: Okay, now to get to it. So a couple of months back, a good friend of mine, one of my oldest friends actually, and whose name is one that you just heard a moment ago, uh, she sent me a video of a creature that I'm honestly kind of embarrassed to admit that I had never heard of before. I just remember being like, whoa, and she was like, right, do an episode. And I was like, um, okay, this creature is one of the oldest living animals in existence. It shoots a death slime basically like right out of its face. It drinks its prey up like a smoothie. They are one of the coolest creatures on 20 plus legs. I'm talking about, of course, the velvet worm. And here with me is a very special guest all the way from the land on under, Australia, which is like my number one for places to visit on my bucket list. So hold on to your butts. You're about to get a whole face full of velvet worm, which aren't actually worms, by the way.
1: Okay, well, hi.
0: This is Tia Freeman. I caught her at 7 a.m., her time, after some technical difficulties. A lot of technical difficulties.
1: I'm from Sydney, Australia, at the University of Sydney, and my area of research is velvet worms, uh, specifically velvet worm behavior.
0: Think. What was it about velvet worms that kind of piqued your interest in And kind of pulled you in why why is this your topic
1: that's a good question so i actually hadn't heard of velvet worms either until about halfway through last year um i was volunteering in a lab doing bee research actually identifying bees so not velvet worms (laughs) okay that was what i was gonna do uh, for my thesis originally but the head of the lab that I work in now had this idea for doing this velvet worm project. And um, this is something that she'd wanted to do for a long time, but velvet worms are fairly rare. (laughs) They're not easy to find, and that makes research on them very difficult. But there's this paper from, like, 2005 where they did a lot of genetic stuff and their whole velvet worm population was actually from... Uh, New South Wales where we are so we ended up going there to like see if we could find any velvet worms and if it was like even a viable research project and we found a decent number of them and there was still a fear that we wouldn't find enough but by that point I was obsessed and they were (laughs) obsessed and it just became like of course this is what I would end up doing and now here we are.
0: (laughs) Okay. So how do, how does one go about finding a velvet worm? What is that? What's that search like?
1: It depends on the species. Usually, the ones that we have live inside of logs. So the first thing that you would want to do—not that I'm advocating people going out and <laughs> taking velvet worms—yeah, please don't—is find a log. Uh, velvet worms are very particular about the logs. So uh, research has shown that. These, this species, won't even inhabit a log until it's been rotting for about 45 years.
0: I mean, it's not like they know it's a 45-year-old log. It's not like they were, like, sitting around like, hmm, I need this log to be 45 years old before I move in. This is unacceptable.
1: It has to be, like, still fairly intact on the outside, but basically, like, mulch on the inside. It needs to be very moist for them. And just because people hate
0: that word, here you go.
1: Moist, 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 moist. Um, velvet worms, unlike insects, don't have an exoskeleton on the outside that keeps the keeps the moisture in. For
0: an adult, I know I talk about SpongeBob like way too much, but in my defense, I have a toddler who likes it, and it's also a great show. But what it reminds me of is like Mr. Krabs without a shell. In fact, their whole body has these pores that are bi- that are trachea that they breathe through. They basically breathe through their body. But because they have all these pores, it's really easy for them to lose water through their body. So they need that moist, humid environment.
1: So if they are exposed to the outside air for too long, the moisture is just drawn out of them. Water! And so they will just dry out. Um, so they need to be either inside of a very rotten log or some of them will live in the leaf litter, but in places like rainforests where it is a lot more wet in general. So yeah, uh, if you're looking for one that you just find in the leaf litter, they are really quite rare, but they'll just be wandering around probably.
0: So do they do they have, um, I'm just thinking in terms of like daily behavior so do they wander far from a particular home base
1: uh, so they tend to be fairly localized particularly the ones that live in the logs um, the okay. females will usually stay probably in the same log for their entire life
0: sort of like the one guy who never left his small hometown who always hangs out behind the local subway because he likes to smell of bread you know like that
1: the males however will leave when they reach maturity to go find other females. So they will go out in search of a different log. Um, Nobody's ever actually found this species outside of the log, so we're not sure how far they're able to go, but their population is quite widespread in the forest where we find them. So they've managed to spread fairly far. Right
0: about here, I'm realizing that we're about five minutes in, and we have yet to even tell you what a velvet worm is. Who knows what you're picturing? A worm made of velvet, like some sort of Muppet? Are you picturing legs? You should be. They have a ton of legs and claws. They're retractable. It's super cool. If you get the chance to look at a video, and you know what? In fact, I will put a link to one in the episode description. So wherever you're listening, just check it out there, and you can click on the link, and you can watch the video. But they move in this just absurd-looking way, just this crazy steadiness. Their, Their legs, they... Here's the thing they don't have bones. They're not vertebrates. They have a hydrostatic skeleton and they basically move with these, uh, muscly undulation, sort of like a worm would, the sort of extension retraction sort of movement and their feet. They, they kind of look like a, if a, if a caterpillar was made out of a starfish, that's, that's my best description. A caterpillar made out of starfish, like, like some kind of weird Plato experiment. Anyway, they're usually pretty inconspicuously colored, like only slightly better than a grout fit, but they can sometimes be colorful and have neat patterns. Nothing too fancy, though. Not like argyle. Okay, back to it. Uh, so anyone anyone at this point is probably wondering then, um, what what exactly is a velvet worm? I mean, I understand it's not a worm, right?
1: Yeah, so velvet worms, I'm not entirely sure why they're called worms.
0: Kind of reminds me of the whole lightning bug thing. Now, you'll hear in November, we did an episode, well, not yet. We did an interview um, with with a a very special person about lightning bugs, fireflies. They're called lightning bugs, they're called fireflies, but they're not bugs and they're not flies. What's up with that?
1: They have legs, um, 13 to 43 pairs of legs. Some of the species are very big. Our ones that we study are quite small. Velvet worms are... It's kind of a difficult question. Velvet worms are their own group. Um, They're onychophorins.
0: Onychophorins. It's a whole phylum. Quick aside from my side. Velvet worms are considered closely related to not only arthropoda, which are insects, crustaceans, meaning my Mr. Crab's naked analogy works, arachnids, and myriapods, but also to the phylum limb If that sounds familiar, it should. Tardigrata, tardigrades. If you're a long-time listener, you know that I have a stuffed tardigrade named Tardy B. Anyway, how cool is that?
1: And they are 500 million years old, is oh. the oldest known velvet worm fossil.
0: The Ordovician period began about 500 million years ago. It lasted for more than 60 million years, and you know the crazy thing here? Okay. 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 Here's a cool part. This period's name comes from an ancient Celtic tribe that lived in, guess what? Wales, the Ordovices. Why is that cool? Because the person I'm talking to is in New South Wales, Australia. What? What? Okay. And ended with the Ordovician Silurian extinction events about four hundred and forty-three point eight million years ago, which wiped out sixty percent of marine genera. In fact, these species used to be marine species.
1: Yeah, so they're very they're very old, and they have survived a very long time, and they haven't really changed much morphologically, which is why they're really interesting. There's actually a like a fossil that they found in China from 500 million years ago. And it's like nearly identical to modern day velvet worms, except that their old defense, for those of you who don't know velvet worms, what's interesting about them is that they can shoot slime out of their face. That's their prey (laughs) catching mechanism. But 500 million years ago, they just had spikes coming out of their face.
0: Oh, okay, just casually.
1: Yeah, just casually. Um, I like to say that it's like they've evolved from like like humans. They had like sharp, pointy things and now they have projectile weapons.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. And they, they got kind of there beat us eventually. to the punch. Yeah. <laughs> so how many, how many species are there? Or is that kind of a tricky question?
1: It's kind of a tricky question. Okay. Um, they're not very well identified at the moment. Okay. There is 700 Wow, But in the like with the species that we study, it's like we call it a species, but it's actually a series of different um, cryptic species, which means that they've all sort of um, been genetically distinct and like isolated long enough that it's a group of different species. It's just that they're sure. close enough morphologically that it's hard to distinguish them.
0: I suppose when you don't wander far off from your log, it's easy to get a little isolated.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the big thing, and that's true of a lot of different um, velvet worm species. So
0: let that be a lesson to us all.
1: There's probably a lot more than we know about, but seven hundred okay. identified. Um,
0: how how big do these get? I mean, some of the pictures that I've seen, it's kind of hard to tell perspective wise, um, especially when you know a lot of the pictures are just kind of surrounded by dirt or mulch or that kind of thing.
1: Um, So, they're probably not as big as you think.
0: She's right. Up until this point, I've been thinking something more akin to, like, a salamander or something.
1: Our ones are really quite small, like, probably your standard caterpillar size, if you're trying to oh, think wow. of a comparison. Sure. Um, the ones that get up to, like, 43 legs, they mm-hmm. get Relatively long, like maybe 15, 20 centimeters.
0: Aha, so they can get big. So when talking science or anywhere other than the U.S., basically, we use the metric system. But since many of us Americans have no idea what these numbers mean, we're talking like six inches. Like half a sub. Or like about the size of a can of Red
1: Bull. Um, okay. But I'm not sure what the biggest species is.
0: I looked it up. It's Parapetus solarzanoi. Solorzano, solorzano, solorzano. I'm not good at this, but anyway, it's the Solorzano's Velvet Worm. The largest female recorded was 22 centimeters. So for you Americans, just under 9 inches, or like a large banana. Say what you will, other countries, but no one can beat the American ingenuity that is using any and all things to measure other than the metric system. Okay, so like was mentioned earlier, we're finally gonna talk about the slime. Talk about bearing the lead, right? Sorry about that. But before that, a quick break. We'll be right back. Live
2: in the Houston area? Check out Armand Bayou Nature Center, the largest urban wilderness preserve in the U.S. ABNC contains 2,500 acres of the natural wetlands, forest, prairie, and marsh habitats once abundant in the Houston and Galveston area. ABNC is home to over 370 species of birds, mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. Their mission? To preserve the habitats with which we've been entrusted, and to provide opportunities for people to experience and understand the local ecosystem. Armand Bayou Nature Center is offering hike trails, exhibits, field trips, scout programs, birding, a historic farm, and fun for all. For more information, visit abnc.org. That's abnc.org.
1: So even now we're like not 100% sure about the mechanism that's happening, but essentially their slime is, it's mostly water and the other Component is protein. And when they shoot this slime out of their face and it hits
0: again, just casually,
1: a poor unsuspecting insect that's walking by, (laughs) um, there are sort of two things that happen. And one is that the proteins denature um, on contact with air, which causes them to harden. And also, as the prey struggles, that causes the water to evaporate out of the substance and those two things combine to make quite a hard sticky substance and that is what traps the prey.
0: Interesting so it's sort of like and I know that this is in no way how quicksand actually works which I I don't know (laughs) about about you but growing up movies taught me that quicksand would be a much more relevant part of adult life and I have yet to encounter any Um, (laughs) but you know the idea is you know you struggle and it kind of just it gets harder to get out of so so when the slime enters the air it immediately begins to harden and then when the victim of this face slime is struggling trying to get out they're only helping it to harden even further is it because they're incorporating air kind of like uh like if you're stirring something and you're making it foamy Uh, so like they're incorporating air into the slime so that's what's helping it to Firm up?
1: Yeah, probably partially that and partially just drying the water out sure. of okay. the mixture. Um, okay. Yeah, because the proteins are what make it hard, but the yeah the water causes the proteins to sort of be in a more um, dissolved sort of state. Okay. And so removing the, the water helps as well.
0: So, how, if I were to be watching this, like how quickly would this unfold?
1: Very quickly. Um, they slime me all the time. And <laughs> you don't really see it like it happens so quickly and it doesn't take long to harden like once the prey is hit it usually can't move anywhere like it, it's almost instant so wow. yeah you really don't see it coming
0: i ended up looking it up and the numbers i found all ranged around 10 to 20 feet per second which is like 13 miles an hour so that whole spear to gun analogy totally holds up and We've been saying face, me in particular. It's not technically the face. It's it's kind of a part of what you might consider the face. For those of you who have seen Waterboy, it's kind of like when he says what part and she says, I guess the knee. It's, it's sort of that, that kind of thing. Um, the things that look like the two front legs are actually modified appendages that hold special glands. Um, they're more like Iron Man's repulsor cannons, and they're called oral tubes or oral papillae. This is what shoots the slime. The streams, when they shoot out, cross paths, and when the two streams combine, they sort of form this wave like a liquid net. And so, these these things are just really cool to me. Um, do they uh, like, in, in terms of prey that they target, is there anything that they prefer, or is there like what's the largest? that they will try to slime. Of course, other than sliming you, but like, you know, intentionally with like you know, aiming to eat it.
1: Yeah, for food, um. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we feed them crickets here. Um, okay. They, we tried feeding them millipedes for a while, but they didn't really want to eat that.
0: Which is like absurd. I mean, who doesn't love picking dozens of legs out of their teeth? By the way, I say dozens. You might have heard Million? No, millipedes do not have a million legs. It has more to do with the pairing of their legs, and they have quite a bit, but definitely not a million.
1: In the logs, it's theorized that they mostly eat termites, but it's hard to tell if that's... um, Because in the log, they can't Mm -hmm. dig holes of their own, so they tend to supposedly live in like tunnels created by other animals and so probably termite tunnels or other ant tunnels yeah so maybe termites that they come across as far as what they will take down um they can take down things bigger than them Uh, particularly this species which does live in social groups will give bigger things more of a go
0: yes social groups it's super cool we'll get there in a few minutes
1: because it is more beneficial to them particularly the adults to go for the bigger prey because their slime is so costly to produce.
0: Costly as in energetically not like money but that's probably obvious.
1: Um so they need to make sure that it's worthwhile for them to use it.
0: Okay so I'm thinking about like snakes so snake venom and granted I I know that this is an entirely different thing but you know Snakes can, many snakes can control, like, the amount of venom that they release. Can velvet worms control the amount of slime? Can, like, they decide, you know, I'm, I'm only trying to get this cricket, I only need this much slime, and kind of just shoot out a little bit less sort of thing? Or is it just kind of a full release when it happens?
1: Yeah, they can control it, just like snakes. Um, the slime makes up about 11% of their body weight.
0: For an unnecessary comparison, one of your legs is equal to about 15% of your body weight. Fun fact Thigh never would calved guest.
1: <laughs> yeah, the most they'll ever expend is 80%, but they have um, full control over how much they release and usually make that judgment based on the size of the prey or whether it's a defensive thing or for prey gathering.
0: So how, how long does it take then? So like once, I mean, if they use 80% of what they have, they've got to replenish that. How long does that take to do? I mean, do they have to be then really cautious about, you know, aim or, or what they, you know, when they choose to do it? Um, is it? Does it take a while to kind of rebuild some of that back or is it relatively quick?
1: Uh, so studies have estimated it takes about 24 days oh, for wow. them to fully... Replenish that from the eighty percent, I believe. So it takes them quite a long time. Um, Wow. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So if you're if you're a velvet worm, and then you, you know, you you see what you're hoping is a meal, and you just go for it, and you shoot the slime, and you miss, (laughs) um, you, you're. I mean, are you basically just kind of out of luck? For the next twenty four days, I mean how long do they typically go um, between between meals?
1: They can go fairly long between meals, easily like a month. So it oh, wouldn't okay. it probably wouldn't um, you know
0: kill them. Meanwhile, I can't go more than an hour, but you know, whatever. My excuse is in a warm blooded.
1: But another thing that they can do is replenish their slime by consuming the slime that they've expended. So if they did miss, it's likely that they could find that slime and re-eat it and then that helps replenish it quicker than having to remake the proteins yeah
0: i mean you don't make it to 500 million years without developing some clever survival tactics like eating your own face slime like like you're picking up ammo in a video game so you mentioned you mentioned social behavior um and that's something i'm really curious about how what does what does a what does a relationship look like um, for velvet worms? What does that social interaction kind of uh, look like? Do they and this might be a very dumb question, and um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but do they do they ever cooperatively you know hunt for things or anything like that?
1: Yeah, that's not a dumb question at all. That's actually the uh, topic of my research thesis or one. Okay, again.
0: two things way to go, Devin. You basically suggested her thesis is a dumb question. And two, oh, thank God it wasn't a dumb question. On that note, I really don't believe there's any such thing as a dumb question. Like there are lazy questions though, where had you taken an extra moment to think or observe or look it up on that thing in your pocket that holds all of human knowledge at your thumb tips? Those things where, where if you'd just taken an extra moment, you might have found your answer. Definitely those, but not dumb. If I'm wrong, and actually, this is this is a good opportunity. This is a good opportunity. If you think that you have a good, dumb question, send it my way. Okay? Email it to us at hey.thewildlife at gmail.com. Message me on Insta. At the wildlife blog or at Devin the Nature Guy, just get it to me somehow. I'm, I'm super curious about your good dumb questions. My philosophy is that the very asking of questions is like the antidote to dumb.
1: Uh, so there was a paper that I mentioned in 2005 that proposed that they do hunt cooperatively, and we're trying to look a bit more into that and how true that is. Sure, it's kind of hard because. When you think of things hunting, you probably think of, like, mammals, like big cats or something, you know? Yeah, sure. And the difficulty with velvet worms that people don't think about is that they can't really see.
0: We have something in common.
1: Their eyes are on top of their head pointing up.
0: Oh, I redact that statement.
1: Even then, their vision is incredibly limited. It's basically just like, is it dark or is there some light coming through? That's all they can differentiate. Okay. So in terms of hunting together, that alone would make it a bit difficult. Also, with how they actually find the prey, I believe that some claims have been made that they can sense vibrations in the air and that's how they target their prey.
3: Hmm.
1: But particularly in this species, that doesn't seem to be the case. They like to actually touch it. With their antennas.
0: It's kind of like people who just can't bring themselves to shop on Amazon. I'm kind of one of those people. I have to go to the store and I have to touch it. I have to I have to feel it. I have to see it. I have to understand what it is I'm dealing with. I don't want to just order something from who knows where.
1: So that they know like how big it is before they decide how much slime to expend on it. So okay. they tend to just not to so much approach things but to just wait until something comes close enough to them for them to sense it and to investigate. Um, They do tend to hang out in groups. So it is likely that in that sense, more than one may slime the prey. They tend to eat the food together, although there is a lot of fighting involved in that. Um, So definitely... There is some element of cooperation.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So if they can't see or anything, then it really is... um, How how do they aim? I mean, is it just that they're so close up that they're right up on it enough to be able to touch it that they can just kind of just...
1: Yeah, usually they're pretty close. Sometimes, I think, particularly in close range, they can sense some movement and vibration, and so that can help. Okay. Particularly because they're fairly small and if their prey is fairly big it gives them quite a a large target but yeah usually they're just pretty pretty close
0: so one thing i i meant to ask and i and i didn't for some reason um where uh, obviously there are some in australia um where else do velvet worms live around the world do they have a, a pretty wide range or is it kind of just uh
1: isolated so australia has the largest diversity i think we have 40 of the 700 species okay but they also live basically in the southern hemisphere and around the equator so they don't go very far into the northern hemisphere but most places like in the southern hemisphere or around the equator will have velvet worm populations Um, So New Zealand has quite a lot of velvet worms, South America has quite a few, Uh, the big ones that you see in, um, like if you've seen the National Geographic video Mm -hmm. of them, world's deadliest animal, that one is from Costa Rica, that really big red one. They are fairly widespread in that zone, but not super widespread.
0: Uh so uh, any in any in Africa or Asia?
1: There is some in Asia. Not sure about Africa. It's hard in some of these places it could just be lack of looking for them. Sure. Yeah.
0: So I checked and yes, they do also live in equatorial West Africa and Southern Africa. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
3: Hi, this is Chelsea or as you may know me, teacher who hikes. And I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to be able to give some hiking tips on this season of the wildlife. This week our hiking tip is one that's pretty simple. Blisters are super duper common especially when you have new shoes while you're taking a hike. Instead of spending money on moleskin or even trying to find moleskin at like the local gas station, you know it works just as well. Duct tape. You just put a piece of duct tape or two on, and you put the shoe right back on, and you're on your way.
0: The Wildlife is joining forces with High Coppers, a central Minnesota nonprofit whose vision we share to connect people to nature through hiking events and educational learning experiences. On the second Saturday of each month, join me at a Stearns County, Minnesota park for a hike, each one with a different theme, like the social network of trees, beavers, dragonflies and more. Learn more at thewildlife.blog or on highcoppers.org. Velvet worm. What's the velvet about? Is that to do with the fact that they kind of look sort of, I guess you could say, velvety? Do they feel velvety?
1: Yes, they do feel velvety as well. Partially their appearance, it's partially their texture. I mentioned that they don't have an exoskeleton, like insects have that hard outer layer yeah velvet worms are covered in essentially sensory organs they have like tiny little bumps all over their body and those are for feeling um, for sensation basically instead of having an exoskeleton so they're incredibly soft and they do sort of feel velvety so that is definitely where the name comes from Mm. so I mentioned that one of my research topics is the cooperative hunting Mm -hmm. but my other area of research is their social groups so this species is social it's the only species that's been studied for being social all other species are supposedly not social at all and the interesting thing about this species and their groups is that they actually have a dominance hierarchy in their groups oh really yeah and it's a female-oriented dominance hierarchy. So the females are bigger than the males, and the females have essentially a hierarchy in their groups, and that is, well, we're researching it now, but thought to dictate which individuals will attack the prey in the group, but also how much food they get to consume and what order they feed in. So, yeah.
0: Then how... Okay, is it... So how do they how do they how do they do this? How do they communicate and say you're going to do the sliming and you are going to get this much? Like how how are they doing that? Is a lot of like sensory kind of just um, wrestling kind of stuff, or is there something else involved? Chemical signaling or
1: mostly. So with their sensory organs, they're said to be able to tell each other apart by okay. feeling over their body. So they know who is who, basically. Hmm. And in terms of the feeding, usually they fight a lot. Um, even without food, they fight a lot for dominance and for position in their group. So if you're sort of like, they, sent, they tend to sit on top of each other, like a stack. And if okay. your head is like at the start of the stack and you find the food, like you're probably going to be the one That shoots the prey. So, I think part of it is just positioning. Also, just fighting to be in the group. They will like kick one out and not (laughs) let it sit with them. Also, when they're feeding, one of them will be eating, and the other ones tend to bite the back of the one that's feeding until it's forced to like confront them or move away from the food. Okay. The other ones can move in. So, they just bite a lot.
0: So, essentially, Essentially, what you're saying is velvet worms are basically um, high school cheerleaders that (laughs) tell each other apart by feeling each other's face, um, get into a pyramid, and whoever's on top gets to nab the prey, and if they don't like one of them, they kick them off the lunch table and um, don't allow them to participate in festivities.
1: Essentially, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay. One interest, other interesting thing about how they eat is that they actually have a type of venom as well. Oh, really? Yeah, so like spiders, their saliva is injected into the prey and they, it dissolves the prey from the inside.
0: If you are wondering how we're just now getting to this shockingly cool revelation, imagine how I felt that we almost missed this. I mean, how cool is that? It's like a giant water bug. We've talked about those previously. Um, the, the saliva breaks it down to make it into a delicious smoothie. Oh, that is so cool.
1: Yeah, so they, like, they drink the remaining dissolved liquid.
0: Very, very cool. So it makes like a, it's like a little smoothie and it comes in a to-go cup.
1: Um, yeah, we call them the cricket smoothies.
0: Cricket smoothies. So I was on to something. Okay. <laughs> so I wanted to be sure that... I have the whole thing right, that I'm getting the right mental picture. Um, So so what I did is I reached out to another special guest. We will hear from them right after the break. The Wildlife is building a community on iNaturalist with a new joinable project. Connect with a community of over 750,000 scientists and naturalists who can help you learn more about nature and help confirm identifications by recording and sharing your observations you help to create quality research data for scientists working to better understand and protect nature iNaturalist is a joint initiative by the california academy of scientists and the national geographic society for details on how to join our project and connect with other listeners visit the wildlife.blog slash iNaturalist just before the break i was talking about how i wanted to be sure that i was getting things right and truly understanding the life of a velvet worm. So I put out some feelers, kind of like a velvet worm would, and got a hold of a very special guest who is here today to share a short story that might help put things in perspective.
3: When most people think of Australia, their mind conjures up images of a mad Maxian landscape bright red sand blemished with gray green freckles of salt brush. Standing tall, in a rigid defiance, the occasional gum or eucalyptus serves as safe haven for koalas and kookaburras under a big hard sun. Maybe they think of the Great Barrier Reef, or, depending on their exposure to pop culture, kangaroos named Jack, crocodile hunters and Dundees, and P. Sherman 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. Me? I think of life. I think of lush green eucalypt forest where trees stand like spires piercing through the thick, Tropical air. I think of cushions of moss blanketed by aromatic leaves. I think of my home. It's a beautiful place, though I don't go out much. Our house sits in a clearing. It has for about 40 years. The old tenants made a lot of renovations, adding in tons of new hallways and crawl spaces. We rent out some space. Well, We more so just tolerate select guests, but it's totally okay because there's plenty of room for me and my family, all 14 of us. My second cousin and his family live nearby. Idiots. A few weeks back, we crossed paths with one of them while out for an evening snack run and laid a beat down like you wouldn't believe. They're total jerks. Like, seriously. I hate them. I just want to spit in their stupid faces. Anyway, where was I? Um, the house. The roof is covered in moss, and the walls grow softer by the week. The whole place is just rotting away, it's perfect, I couldn't ask for a better log. My youngest brother, Rolly, won't get off my back, but that's just because he knows I'm the one in charge around here. Robbie and Charlie, they never seem to get the message, or at least they always seem to need a reminder. Our relationship is one built on fear and respect, really. I chase, they run. If I catch them, they're gonna get bit. I don't necessarily want to. I mean, I'm not heartless. Heck, I never even wanted to be in charge. My mom, her name was Bonnie. She died a year ago. I'll never forget that terrible moment. We were asleep when there was a sudden thud on the roof. It got closer, This pounding. I've never felt anything like it. We scrambled deeper into the hallways and crawlways. Somehow the sun found its way in through the roof. We were all so scared I didn't know what to do. Then everything fell still. I scrambled through the group, reading their bodies like braille and picking up whatever signals I could. I found all but one. My mother was gone. The whole group was in shambles. Needed a leader. Everybody came to me for stroking my back with their antennae. It wasn't the consoling kind of back rub it was more inquisitive i remember my aunt insisting that she was the largest and therefore leader was her rightful place she wouldn't settle until everyone had checked thoroughly but here we are so you know how that turns out after that everything changed folks paired off to form what we call aggregates there's paul and i my aunt and uncle two of my sisters, and then all of my annoying brothers. Life around here is pretty simple. Like I said before, we don't get out much, but when we do, it's usually to get some grub, and we never go out during the day. I still remember our first hunt after my mom passed. I didn't know how to lead. I I remember sitting in my chamber when Paul came in, his long body bending around the quarter chest slightly raised. I couldn't see him, but I could feel him like the energy around me just changed. You okay? He asked. I'm fine. Well, he said, it rained all day. The sun's going down, and it's been a few weeks since we all had a good meal. What do you say? I was nervous, reluctant, but my family needed me. They needed a leader, you know those scenes out of movies where a group of friends walks into a room in slow motion and they're feeling themselves and flipping their hair and it's oh it's just awesome. I've never seen it, but I know a cockatoo who has seen that before through some human's window. And he has said that is uh, that's what we look like when we're on the brow. He also says that I look like a dismembered starfish arm, but... We glide along the forest floor with the same focus and control of a leopard. Our steady strut is the envy of nature documentarians around the globe. We bend around branches and silently move along the beds of moss on the pads of our feet, only retracting our claws when we need to get a grip. We keep our chest raised with the confidence of a crock as we stay in tune with every micrometer of our bodies waiting to see the slightest variation in vibration or wind current to clue us in on the location of our month's meal. A millipede wraps its body in a corkscrew around a fallen branch an ant's length away from me. This is my shot, my moment. It brushes my antenna. I race up undetected, study my aim, and release. Two streams unleash in full force, crossing paths, and in their collision forming a wave of which there is no escape. My slime begins to harden as soon as it's left. The cricket, easily twice my size, struggles to break free. It's useless. The more he struggles, the more trap serves its purpose. A moment has passed, the millipede growing weaker by the second, and I'm just sitting there, fully expecting, hoping that my mother will brush my side as she goes in for the kill. She always ate first. The leader always does. But she never comes. I make my move, feeling for a joint or some other weak point in the millipede's armor plating. I find it and hone in. With a dagger-like pierce, I inject my saliva into the now lifeless body of the millipede, which immediately begins its work of digesting its meat, allowing me to enjoy my dinner as a smoothie. While I wait, I quickly locate my slime and begin to eat whatever of it that I can. No one, especially the leader, can afford to go slimeless. I return to the site of the fatal wound, form a seal around the opening, and enjoy my feast. Over the next hour, that's what I do. My aunt and sisters circle nearby, waiting for their turn. My brothers stay way back. They know better. Besides, they'll get their turn. Later, Philip and I get close, cleaning our antenna with full bellies. Your mom would be proud. I know, a snarkly reply, I've never been one for modesty. Later that night, we returned home. Weeks go by before anyone gets hungry. We spend time exploring the new renovations made by our termite roomies. Lord knows we can't tunnel ourselves. The family has grown since then. Some of us have split off to new logs to start our own families. But this, this is my home. It's a beautiful place.
0: Wow, that was. That that was a really really moving story. I had to say thank
3: you. Thank you.
0: A huge thanks to Velma the Velvet Worm. She currently lives with her very large family in a log in New South Wales, Australia, where she has been the highly successful matriarch for about three years now. We wish her the best of luck in a long, healthy life. May her aim stay true. And also, a huge thanks to our very special guest, Tia Freeman. I want to extend a bonus thanks for the idea of Velvet Worm motivational posters for my classroom. It's genius. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at TheAusBiologist, Aus as in A-U-S, like the first three letters of Australia. There's so much that we just couldn't quite get to. For one, velvet worms have incredibly interesting sex lives with really weird adaptations and behaviors and forms of birth like some give live birth. It's nuts. They also have an incredible evolutionary history. Both topics will definitely warrant a return at a later point, but here's the crazy thing. Even with all we do know, there's so much that we don't. Their cryptic, nocturnal, near agoraphobic lifestyles and rarity make them pretty kind of difficult to find, let alone study. In terms of conservation, it's largely an unknown. Very few species have been evaluated, and those that have are nearly all labeled as near-threatened or vulnerable. Human industry, slash-and-burn agriculture, deforestation, and habitat fragmentation are surely having an impact on velvet worm species and are a major concern, but unfortunately, it's difficult to determine just how large. Some parts of the world prevent export and collection, but the only place in the world with explicit protections is Tasmania. My hope in doing this episode is to spark some interest, maybe even a passion or a career in velvet worm research for some listener out there. Even if you just casually mention them over coffee or next time you're hot gluing during craft night with the besties, the more people know about science and nature, the better off we and our fellow earthlings will be the time for conservation and change is now. There isn't any time to waste, so get out there and geek out. Next time on The Wildlife, we talk to Dr. Kabir Pei and Dr. Tom Volk about mushrooms, wood wide webs, and the fungus among us. Thank you so much for listening, but one more thing before you go. And now, It is time for Animal Sound of the Week. In the past, we've always done Animal Sound of the Week. The funny thing is, is a lot of our episodes were once a month or every couple of months or kind of intermittent, so of the week didn't make a whole lot of sense. But now that we actually are switching to a weekly format, Animal Sound of the Week makes a heck of a lot of sense. So I'm going to kick things off with a familiar sound to keep it easy. Okay, here we go. Okay, hopefully that was somewhat recognizable. You can submit your guesses for Animal Sound of the Week by messaging us on Instagram at either at thewildlife.blog or devinthenatureguy or by emailing us at hey.thewildlife at gmail.com or by using the hashtag AnimalSoundOfTheWeek on any social media accounts. Remember, if you're right, one of you will be selected to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. Also, one last thing, I promise, last thing before we go. We are starting something new, and that is each month we are picking either a different conservation fund, a nonprofit, a research project, something like that uh, to share some funds with. Five percent of what we earn on Patreon. This month, that five percent is going to Armand Bayou Nature Center. You heard about them earlier in the episode. Um, that's where I got my start as an outdoor educator and as a naturalist, and so they are the first recipient of that five percent. Check them out at abnc.org.
2: The Wildlife is listener and reader supported. Visit patreon.com forward slash Wildlife to become a member, or join one of our exclusive clubs for as little as $1 per month. Questions, concerns, or corrections? Contact us at hey.thewildlife at gmail.com. Craving more content? Check out the complimentary blog post to this episode, including a complete list of sources and a whole lot more at thewildlife.blog. Or check us out on Instagram at thewildlife.blog or at devinthenatureguy.